Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. Against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you will perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. The uh, Junior Theater, I think that there is a clown that is kind of the character that's been kind of carried all the way through these, through these years. Uh, I can't remember the name of the clown. I have to get the name of that clown. But that clown is, uh, that clown is kind of the main staple all the way through. So you kind of see pictures of that, so that clown. I'm not that clown. <laughs> no, I'm Rob Spikestra. I am the pastor. <laughs> I'm the pastor of discipleship. And I am uh, here going to be preaching through uh, Psalms uh, through the summer while our lead pastor, Justin, is on sabbatical. So I want you to be clear of exactly who's standing here before you. Not a clown, not Justin, just me, Rob, Rob Spikestrip. Before I go any further, I do want to thank those who have, are the, uh, the setup crew and the takedown crew and the band. Uh, they've been here since 5 o'clock this morning or 5.30 this morning, and they will be here long after they leave in the second service. Everybody else leaves in the second service. Uh, again, last night, they were celebrating deep into the night, <laughs> and so we couldn't get a setup. Usually, we set up on Saturday evenings, and we didn't get a chance to do that. So I uh, thank you, all of you who are really sacrificing on our behalf in order for us to enjoy our time of worship. So we want, I say that for, you, for all of the folks here who get in just joy coming in and enjoying just sitting here and enjoying the worship and, and coming together. So thank you very much for all the effort that you have, uh, effort you have done. Seen a lot of nods saying, yes, uh, we agree, we agree. So let's pray and then we'll uh, get, into, get into the Psalms here. Uh, Father, uh, the, the thing that we don't need is we don't need to see me. We don't need to see ourselves. What we really need, Father, right now is, as we've been trying to do, is we need to see you. And so, God, our prayer is, is that you would kind of wipe away the distractions, those things that are keeping us from seeing you. We would pray that you would be at work in our hearts and our lives, because, Father, as we're going to discover here, the natural bent we have is to be in rebellion. The natural bent is to want to cast your um, your sovereignty off of us. Uh, so, Father, even though uh, uh, we may be in Christ, Father, we still live in these fleshly bodies who uh, want uh, to, to rebel. And so our prayer, Father, is that as we come to your word, that you would uh, overcome us, that you would uh, rule over us, that you would, um, that you would defeat our foolish arguments against you, and that, Father, rather we would come to you and embrace you and that we would fear you more that you would grow our fear of you, and that, Father, you'd help us to understand what that means. And so, God, we, we, we have a big, tall order here, and uh, we are grateful that you are more than capable of doing great work in our hearts and lives. So we pray that you would do that uh, through your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week, uh, we began our summer in the Psalms. We looked at Psalm 1, which is the poetic pillar, one of the poetic pillars that kind of enters us into uh, this great temple of the Psalms. Psalm 2 today is a second poetic, uh, poetic pillar, and like, like any good introduction, uh, what we will find is that we find the themes of Psalm 1 and the themes of Psalm 2, we will begin to, we'll see those throughout all the rest of the, the Psalms. So in one sense, we will be able to hear Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 as we continue to press through, or if you had time to read all through the Psalms, you would begin to see uh, those themes repeated over and over and over again. Now, if you remember from last week, or if you were not here, uh, I pointed out that the, the book of Psalms is unique in several ways. First, the most obvious, 
in this uh, library of 66 books that God has given to us, he has given us this unique book, which is a songbook. It's God's songbook for all of his people. It's a Hebrew poetic form of the Psalms. It's the only one like it in, in, the, in this library. Secondly, it is unique in that it is the only book that has an editor. Someone had to compile these psalms, and so of all the psalms, probably many, many more psalms than 150 that we have here, there had to be someone who had come along uh, and would kind of grasp and hold and get a hold of the psalms that we now have within our Bibles. You think about the psalms themselves. Uh, they were the David's psalms, which are the majority are written by David. David's psalms were uh, written 1,000 B.C., approximately 1,000 B.C., uh, but we also know that 500 years later, there are still psalms being written because by the very content of the psalms themselves, we see that they were written by those who had gone through the exile uh, and then back into the restoration. And so uh, a long period of time of what we have here. And this person, possibly was the person of Ezra, and whom we studied uh, all about uh, this last uh, winter and spring. And if it wasn't Ezra, it was an Ezra-like kind of character, a person who, like him, who, Ezra 7.10, set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And because this songbook is inspired, that is God speaking uh, through the authors, uh, because it is inspired, we know that uh, the word of God is actually even within the Psalms themselves, that they're not just a song, they are an instructive uh, song uh, for our lives. And then also, I pointed out last week, that these Psalms aren't thrown uh, together just willy-nilly, but rather that there is an order that there's an order to the Psalms, which many times we don't even think about. So last week I noted that in this particular order, there's a particular message that God may have for us. And so here's what I propose for you, uh, possibly uh, the, the order. Book one, Psalms one through 41, the God of heaven confronts the nations that there is only one king. And so we could put confrontation, book one. Book two, Psalms 42 through 72, communication. That while God confronts those nations, there is an intent to communicate God's heart for the nations. And that he desires for a Davidic-like king, a David-like king, to be on the throne uh, over those nations for the nations. Um, Book 3, Psalms 73 through 89, there's a realistic picture, however, of the conflict with the powers of the nations that doesn't always end well, and so we could use the word devastation, devastation. The nations as a whole do not want his reign, and so the reality of the fallen world is that it is one of conflict, one of great difficulty, and at times one of devastation even over God's people, that God's people are devastated. And that is true of a nation, and that is also true even of our own very lives. Book four, Psalms 90 through 106. God uses our difficulties and even devastation to bring about maturation, maturation. That is that as we have discovered and what we find even in the New Testament so often is that that which is uh, trials and difficulties and troubles and devastation, God actually uses that, reigns over that in order to do something in our lives and that is to cause us to be people who are more mature in our faith uh, in the God of heaven. So maturation. Finally, book five, Psalm 107 through 150, consummation, consummation. We see kind of the theme there in that final book is God will have his way. He will be glorified through a people who are brought under his kind kingly rule. So as we saturate ourselves in the overall message of the Psalms, uh, we learn in the short-term conflicts, difficulties, and even devastation, as God's kingdom confronts and communicates to the kingdoms of the world, Even our own little kingdoms of our hearts and lives, as God is doing that, we can be assured he will have his way. He will be glorified in this world and in our lives. So it is inevitable 
that the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world will be in conflict. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verses 33 through 34, he says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so there's a temptation to want to kind of stay, stay low, uh, to keep our heads down. But he says, if you deny me, you're, uh, I'm going to deny you before my Father in heaven. Then he says this, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. It's come for a lot of reasons, but one of the things that happened as a result of him coming and the king, his kingdom being established is there is conflict. The kingdom of fallen man and the kingdom of God will come into conflict. I agree with J.I. Packer, the great theologian, author, pastor. As he reflected on the Puritans of England and New England before the founding of our own country, he wrote these words. He said, the Puritans exemplified maturity. We don't. Spiritual warfare made the Puritans what they were. They accepted conflict as their calling, seeing themselves as their Lord's soldier pilgrims, not expecting to be able to advance a single step without opposition of one sort or another. Now, when he says, we don't exemplify maturity, he is referring to the tendency of Christians in the West to not expect or want conflict. But rather, as Packer writes a little bit further along, he, he writes, we'd rather, to we'd rather live in a personal, pietistic kind of cocoon. In, in other words, it's tempting for us in the West that we just simply have our Christianese, that we, we have our devotional time, and we kind of keep ourselves kind of cocooned within that, and whatever's happening outside of the world, whatever's happening within the kingdoms of the world, that's really not our business as long as I have my little, my little cocoon, uh, piety cocoon. But conflict is inevitable. Remember, culture runs down stream from what we believe, and so we cannot separate out what we believe as a society and what we consider moral and thus lawful. We can't separate that from our public life. See, we are seeing right now, overtly, we've seen this weekend, overtly, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man clashing. When it comes to overturning this Roe versus Wade clash, conflict is, it's inevitable. And we see that here in Psalm 2. But before we get there in Psalm 2, let me just remind you of Psalm 1, the first part of the introduction to the Psalms. See, last week, the message of Psalm 1 was simply this, the message I gave to you, and that is that God's aim for your life is your happiness. The Psalms begins, Psalm 1 begins this way. First phrase, we can expect that if we go through the Psalms, we can expect this, blessed is the man or woman. Or, as I argued, we could translate it, happy is the man or woman. As long as happy is understood not purely as an emotional state, although it can, and we can feel happy, but as long as it doesn't, it can just be that emotional state, but rather it is a state that whatever circumstances we find ourselves in or whatever, whatever emotional state we can find ourselves in, because if you begin to think about it, if you know anything about the Psalms, you go all over the place in terms of the, the range of emotions that we, we have there. See, there's a whole host from abject failure to great success, from deep depression to a great thrill, from dark difficulties to mountaintop moments in all of those motions, emotions and circumstances, we can discover that happiness can remain true for God's people. God's aim for your life is your happiness. 
And crucial to our happiness is the first pillar, and that is the Word of God. And so let me read for you the first part of our um, introduction. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. Not only are there a number of psalms that are focused upon the Word of God, Psalm 119 is a prime example, but the psalms being received as truly the Word of God is crucial to our happiness. And so thus, the psalms, I argued last week and continue to argue, ought to be a centerpiece of our lives and by God's providence in our our English version, uh, it's right in the middle of our library. center of our lives. But the introduction is not complete with Psalm 1. Psalm 2 is the second part, the second poetic pillar. And it gives us the second key to our happiness. A key that will be repeated and expounded upon throughout the rest of the Psalms. So if at the center of our happiness in Psalm 1 is the written word of God, then at the center of our happiness in Psalm 2 we discover is, I'm going to take this from John, the apostle, the disciple, center of our happiness is the living word of God. We have the written word of God in Psalm 1, and now we're going to be introduced to a written word of God in Psalm 2. Let me show you that, and then let me show you what we need to do with uh, that living word of God for true happiness to be our experience. So let's look, first of all, at the living word of God, uh, verses 1 through 9. I'm just going to start here by rereading verses 1 through 6. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now the content, or the context, sorry, of which there is here in the introduction of of whom I'm calling the living word of God is the context that we are all born into, and it's a context of rebellion. In Paul's New Testament letter to the Romans, if you remember, we we started Romans, and the first three chapters of his, his letter, he's building up a particular conclusion that says that whether your life can be characterized as rec- reckless, Romans 1, 18 through uh, 32, or respectable, Romans 2, 1 through 6, or religious, Romans 2, 7, 3 through 8, the reality, he writes, is all three is that they, we are all in rebellion against God in our recklessness or in our respectability or in our religiosity. That we're all in rebellion. It doesn't matter which category you find yourself in. We are all in rebellion. And it's interesting where Paul then goes to prove this from the Old Testament scriptures. He goes to the Psalms. Psalm 14, verses 1 and 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. And the conclusion of that psalm is this. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And then... Paul turns to the Psalms again. We're born into rebellion. Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And then the next stanza of that Psalm, Psalm 51, verse 5, goes this way. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. In other words, God delights truth in the inner being. But the problem is, we don't. The respectable and religious sinner can make a show 
of delighting in the word of God, of delighting in truth. In other words, we can be good at our external show of delighting in these things, but God sees the reality of the inward heart. And ultimately, the reality of the inward heart is that we do not love that truth. Rebellion, rebellion looks and sounds like then verses one through three of Psalm two. People who are in rebellion, rage. Rage focuses on the emotional state. And then look at the second thing we do, we plot. Plot builds off of that emotional rage. So rage fuels the putting together of thoughts and plans of rebellion. And what is instructive here is if you look in your text there, you see this word plot. It's the same exact word that is translated meditate in Psalm 1. It is the sitting in and mulling over how we're going to express our rage. So the blessed man, on the other hand, is one who meditates on God's word, the raging man or woman meditates on how he or she can put into action their rebellion. Verse two, rebellion looks like setting ourselves against and counseling together. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Kings are the ones who set the vision. They name the goal. Rulers are those who are surrounding the king and surrounding the king in his endeavor. And so the kings set themselves, set themselves against God. So it is a decision of the will. Now, I, just, just stop here for a minute because we can, we can think of that as, oh, those people out there. But we got to begin to go back into our own hearts and recognize that we have a tendency to do the same thing even in Christ. That we have a tendency that when God convicts us of our sin, that there's a bit of rage that goes on there, can go on there. That we can begin to counsel and think of ways of how to justify the very sin that we have in our lives. We can counsel, we can find others who will listen to us and we'll counsel together of how we can be in, you know, this nice quiet rebellion. We set ourselves against him. Rulers take counsel together. See, God's people in the exile experience that. Uh, if these psalms are coming in, uh, to those, the compiling of are coming to those who've gone through uh, the exile, they, they know what it's like when kings set themselves against them, uh, against God. Uh, they, they experience Babylon and Persian kings who set themselves against God. Darius, remember, foolishly, he, he said in an ordinance, he set himself against God, saying that no petitions could be made to any God or any man for 30 days except to him. <laughs> the consequence, the consequence of going against this injunction, I'll throw you in the den of lions. You remember the story. Well, Daniel, not one to live in a pietistic cocoon, <laughs> he used his pietistic practice of prayer to challenge the injunction and publicly prayed for everybody to see, prayed to God. And the rulers who spurred Darius to create the injunction, they bet on that. They bet on Daniel's convictions that what one believes does, does have implications on public life and law. And so he was thrown into the lion's den. In the New Testament, we find Herod. We find Herod who was set on killing the one who was named the king of the Jews, Jesus, when he was yet an infant. And the, the account reads this way. Matthew 2, the account reads this way. Then Herod became furious. Sounds like, a lot like our rage. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Rebellion is the decision of the will. Rage, plotting, setting against, counseling together. This is what rebellion looks like. And this is what rebellion sounds like. Verse 3. These are the words. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now the there, the pronoun, the plural pronoun, 
is the Lord and his anointed. So the bonds and cords is the law of the Lord, that universal absolute truth that is found in God alone. And so this is what they want to cast off. This is what the rebellious want to cast off. They want to cast off the absolute truth that comes from God, who is, who is the only one who sets that absolute universal truth. So whether you are reckless in your lifestyle or you are respectable or religious, there is a knowledge of the law of God, of the demands of God, the creator. Paul says the law is written on our hearts. Our conscience begins to convict us. There was a time when I was, uh, I was li- I lived in, we've lived in Pennsylvania for about eight years. There's a, there's a moment in my life, you know you have those moments in your life that are like pictures that you can, you can actually see that moment because they're so significant. Well, there's a moment in my life, I was home alone, I was looking out our kitchen window, I can still picture the, uh, we had a, a, an Amish farmer's field in our, in our backyard, right past our backyard. And I remember looking out there, it was a difficult time in my life. It was a point in which I don't even remember what the difficulty was, nor do I even remember what the conviction was, but God was convicting me of sin, and I was in rebellion. And I'm standing there in front of the sink here looking out, and, the, and, and I can't get away from the conviction that God has placed upon my life. And so you know what I did? Uh, home alone. I yelled, leave me alone. Graciously and mercifully, he didn't answer that prayer. Because that's a prayer of praying for a curse. See, we we learned in Romans 1, we learned that what God does in his cursing is that he gives us over to what we want. In other words, he leaves us alone. Okay, you want this? You can have it. So I think that's what is going on here in terms of verse 3 is, is that that's what we want. We want God, leave us alone. Let me be the law. Let me be a law unto myself. Let me be the king of my life. Let me say what is right and wrong. Let me do what I want to do. Let me cast off the restraints so that I can be free from you. These are the words. Words of rebellion. It's a cry to do whatever our, our fallen heart desires. It's a cry to be our own God. It's a cry to be a law unto ourselves. It's a cry to be unrestrained. And so rebellious humanity wants to cast away in contempt God and his, uh, and his word, the bonds and cords that they're crying out to. They want freedom from his rule. And it is clear from the question in verse 1 that that cry for freedom from God's rule is ultimately in vain. See, vanity is like you know, grasping and holding on to smoke. It is useless. It is a pointless endeavor to rebel against the one who was and is and will be the one who has no beginning or end. It is vain for those who depend upon their very existence to the one who is self-existence to want to cut off from their source of existence. It's, you know, it's like cut flowers, Cut flowers, Uh, they are free from the restraints of the roots and the garden to go into the freedom of the house. And so they get that freedom. They get to go to different rooms within the house. But what they don't discover or don't know and what they do discover is that quickly they wilt and die and are thrown away. It's vain and it's foolish. Look at verses four through nine. See, Here's how the Lord responds. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Uh, did you con- catch the contrast of locations? Um, where, where are the kings? Where are the kings? Uh, the kings are on the earth, the kings of the earth. Where is the Lord? In the heavens. They are rebellion against the one who sits in the heavens. So with that vantage point, it is reasonable to laugh. I visited my twin boys a couple weeks ago. Um, They're just a little over one. They've discovered they have a will. Um, 
So my, the, they both kind of demonstrate that will in a little bit different way. And um, the one likes to, Rowan, he likes to, uh, uh, you tell him no, he likes to do this nice scrunch stuff, you know, face and angry, angry mouth and angry word or, you know, screams and everything of this nature. He does it, does it for about three seconds. He stops, looks at you. How are you going to respond? I mean, uh, you know, face go off, on, off, on, off, on. So how are you going to respond? Kind of a feel to it. And, and you know how we responded? We laughed. It was funny. I mean, it was just so funny. You think, that's going to do it? You know, this is, your, this is your infantile way of showing your will and going to want to express your will. And we, we laughed. I think that's the picture. So he does so because he knows their end. There's another time we find, again, themes being repeated. Psalms 37, verse 13 says the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. He, he laughs and then he, in our, in, our, in our passage here, he holds them in derision. It is a recognition that they deserve scorn for being so presumptuous to rebel against his good, kindly king. Good, kindly rule. But he moves beyond laughing to speaking. So verse five, then he will speak. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Now, if you remember several weeks ago, as we were in Romans 1.18, I said that God's wrath is not one of his intrinsic attributes. That is, wrath doesn't belong to his essence. So we do know he, what does belong to his essence. The scripture is very clear. God is love. You know, God is good. God is holy. There's explicit expressions of the intrinsic attributes of who God is. So, but we never find God is wrath. But rather we find that God is wrathful because God is, uh, God's wrathfulness is simply a functionality of his intrinsic attributes. And so he's wrathful only when sin exists. Because he's God who is love, good, and holy. The other things. So God's wrath only exists if sin exists, but when it does exist, it looks like our verse, look at our verse there, it is, in the verse 5, last second stanza, it is terrifying. God's wrath is the proper measured response to the injustice of our rebellion. Now, what does he say in his wrath? What words flow out of his, out of his wrath? Now, I want you to think about what happens with you, sinner, me, sinner. When you are wrathful, when you are really angry, what are the words that flow out of your mouth? And let's say, let's just even, let's give ourselves a little, you know, break here. And let's say that I am actually angry or wrathful at something that is unrighteous. And, and in my best attempt, I'm angry and wrathful. Um, and, you know, I'm going to express it in, in a way. What, what's, that gonna, what's that going to sound like? What, what words am I going to, to, to express? Now think about that. Think about the, probably the lack of measure that you have. Think about the lack of measure I have. Think, think about uh, the regret many times that in my wrath, how many times I was so angry, I said some words, and then I had to go back and regret the very words that I had said. So think about that. The Lord's words are these. Verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, now, that's not what I was expecting. When I got to this point of the psalm, I'm thinking, okay, I'm with James and John. Remember James and John? He's walking along with Jesus, and they come to this uh, Samaritan. They're moving towards Jerusalem. They're heading towards the cross. They're, they're, they know that God has called this man, you know, James and John. This is the Messiah here, and they're coming into a Samaritan village. A Samaritan village, they discover, oh, you're going to Jerusalem. We don't want to have anything to do with you, and what does James and John say to Jesus? They say, hey, hey Jesus, do you, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and, and consume them? <laughs> oh, no. 
See, that, that's me. That, that's how I would have responded, and that's how uh, I would have expected uh, God to respond from what we have here. But no, he said something deaf. The Lord's words to our raging rebellion schemes to throw off his rule is a measured expression of his sovereign decree to set his king on Zion. See, the, the Hebrew word for anointed that we saw back in verse 2 is it's just simply translated, transliterated in the New Testament, Messiah. So anointing means Messiah. The practice was that when a man was declared king of Israel, he was anointed with oil. So God's response to our rebellion is to tell us a message about his sovereign plan to set his king on Zion, his holy hill. So verses 7 through 9 are some specifics about that sovereign plan. So let's read now that sovereign decree. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, and today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's Vessels. Now, these verses are the poetic version of the prose form that we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 through 17, which is God's promise to David. God's promise to David, which we call the Davidic covenant. See, God is really consistent. That's an understatement. He, he does not change. So from the very beginning of humanity's rebellion against God, Adam and Eve, God did a surprising thing in the face of that rebellion. He didn't destroy them. He made a promise to them instead. We call it the covenant of grace. This is how God responds to our rebellion. He says, let me give you a promise. A promise that I'm going to deal with that rebellion with a king. See, the Davidic covenant is downriver from that first expression of God's covenant of grace. It is an expression that a king from David's line would be the Messiah. So they were waiting, king after king after king, from David's line, and they all failed. They failed to respond with the interests and desires of God. They failed to represent the will of the Father to the people. <laughs> and that was the plan. The Father intended for his son to be the king to deal with the rebellion of the people first at the cross. So Psalm 2 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. The first time we find it quoted is in Acts 4. Acts 4. Described there is when Peter and John, they have been arrested by the Jewish leaders for healing a man in the name of Jesus. They were questioned by the, the Jewish leaders. Then they're charged not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And then released, and we read, these, uh, the, we read this, Acts, 20, Acts 4, 23 through 28. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to, him, uh, said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, hope you recognize what he said here. <laughs> so here we go. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly now they're interpreting, now here they're, they're interpreting what, is just what they've just experienced. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What were they saying? They were saying the rage and the plot and the setting themselves against God's anointed, Jesus, accomplished the plan of God to send the king to the cross to deal with God's rightful wrath against their rebellion. So, here we go. The rebellious, in their rebellion, accomplished the plan of God to deal with the wrath of God for their rebellion. Let me do it again. The rebellious, 
in their rebellion, accomplish the plan of God for their rebellion. You cannot outsin God's grace. <laughs> for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We, in our versions, our King James Version, only begotten, which is verse 7 in Psalm 2. For God so loved the world that he, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to judge, to condemn the world, sorry, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. So we have the written word, God's expression of who he is and how he acts. Jesus is the living word. He's the living expression of who God is and how he acts. So now what do we do with that? How do we deal with this God who acts in such a way in our rebellion? What are we to do with it? Well, that's what verses 10 through 12 are in Psalm 10, Psalm 2. This is what we do with it. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So first, we are to be wise. And verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Now we typically don't think of fear as a good thing. And we certainly don't take those two words, rejoicing, with trembling. So what's this all about? Well, the fear here is a godly fear. And the cross is that uniquely fertile soil to plant our seed of faith and grow in that fear of God. Now, why is this? Well, because at the cross we receive the forgiveness without which we could never approach God or even want to. Now, um, some of you come from a sad story of a father who, in his fury, your response was to get away, to run to run from his rage. Or some of you have worked for a boss or maybe an owner of a company in which in their fury, you know what to do. You try to keep your head down and get away. That is not the fear that we're called to here in verse 11. See, we, we know what to do. Well, I hope you know what to do. You know, when I was a kid, I hated, I hated scary movies. Um, you know, okay, dating myself, black and white, I watched that, okay? So Channel 2, Denver, black and white. We only had four stations. I was the independent station. They did all these black and whites. They had these giant ants movies, you know? Um, there was The Blob. There was a remake, I know, but The Blob, you know, that kind of thing. You know, this is how I watched those, you know? I would every once in a while, you know, put my fingers, but because I, they terrified me. Now, some of you are kind of sick and you love these kind of movies, but, you know, that's, that's, that's your own problem. <laughs> um, our natural reaction to terror is to hide or to run, and that is, the, that is an ungodly fear. God is not calling us to run, actually. In our fear of him, he's actually calling us to run towards him. <laughs> so, so the fury that, that we read there, uh, we go back there, and he talks about, a, uh, he's speaking to them in wrath, and he's terrifying them in his fury. In, in the fury and the terror of that rebellion, he says, now fear me, run to me, and, and rejoice, because I dealt with my fury. I dealt with my wrath in my king. I poured out my wrath on my anointed one in order that you could, in my terror and fury of your sins, that you could know you could run to me and I could be your shelter. So we do have a God who's rightfully angry against our rebellion. And it's there where we find our forgiveness. And so here's an interesting psalm 
phrase. So we're going to do Psalm 130, verse 4. Because again, this just doesn't fit. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We, we don't think in those terms, but this is how God thinks. So Spurgeon wrote, if you fear God and know not that there is a mediator between God and men, you will never think of approaching him. God is a consuming fire. Then how can you draw near to him apart from Christ? If you fear God and not know of Christ's atonement, how can you approach him? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And with the blood of Jesus, there's no no way of access to the divine mercy seat. But if you know not Christ, you will never come to God. Your fear must link itself with the goodness of God as displayed in the person of his dear son. So the cross, by the forgiveness it brings, liberates us from a sinful fear to flee. But far more than that, it also cultivates then a most exquisitely fearful adoration of the Redeemer. It's the connection. It's the linking of God's grace and goodness with his glory. And I cannot think of a better picture of this adoration than the sinful woman who at the house of Simon the Pharisee at Jesus' feet, uh, who at the house of Simon the Pharisee, she's at Jesus' feet, and Luke describes it this way, weeping, she began to wet his his feet with her tear and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. And at this, Jesus said to Simon, Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little." So when you really understand the magnitude of your sin and the magnitude of the Father's forgiveness, you love him more and more, and that is at the core of true fear of God. See, that woman demonstrated the fear of God. The sinful woman was wise. She served the Lord with fear. She rejoiced with trembling. And look there at verse 12. In our passage, she kissed the son, literally. And that's what we're to do. See, Simon, the Pharisee, minimized his sin. Simon, the Pharisee, thought highly of himself and thought lowly of God. Simon was a sinner. He had as many sins as that woman, but he made little of it. Simon saw no need to kiss the son. See, there's a warning there in verse 10. It says, be warned, verse 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. To reject the son, to reject God's grace offered to you at the cross is to incur his wrath. For his wrath is quickly kindled, so there is no time to waste. The father intends for his son to be the king to deal with the rebellion of the people first at the cross, but if you reject the cross, then he intends the king to then deal with the rebellion at the throne of his judgment. So in the face of his fury, he's calling you to him as your refuge. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Spurgeon continues in this quote. Let me read it for you. He says, your fear... Catching up where we were last. Your fear must link itself with the goodness of God as displayed in the person of his son, or else it cannot be that seeking fear, that fear toward the Lord of which our text speaks. It will be a fleeing fear, a fear that drives you further and yet further away from God into greater and deeper darkness, into dire destruction. In fact, into that pit whose bottomless abyss swallows up all hope, all rest, and all joy forever. Spurgeon was speaking of the unbeliever who does not know the cross, the Christ of the cross. But believer, in fact, too much of the same problem remains in us. 
Though you have been enlightened by the Spirit concerning your sins and Christ's death on the cross for your sins, it's possible your enjoyment of that forgiveness is shallow. Rather than going deep into the forgiveness of Christ, what do you do? You minimize your sin and you maximize the sin of others. You you fail to offer forgiveness and you fail to ask for forgiveness. You don't drive deeper into the chest of your Savior. You keep him at a distance. Yeah, it's... It's us who look more like Simon the Pharisee, the self-righteous, composed, and in control than the woman of many sins, trembling, unrefined, and really could care less what people were thinking about her at that moment. (laughs) In her service of the Lord. So, serve the Lord with fear. Don't minimize your sin. Don't minimize the holiness of God. Press deeper and deeper into the chest of your Savior. Fear him. Rejoice in trembling. This God of the universe is my refuge. Yeah, there's going to be conflict in the world. God's kingdom is at odds with a broken kingdom of man. And in that conflict, God is for you. Blessed is the man. And that blessedness, your happiness is found by delighting in the word of God and delighting in the living word of God by taking refuge in Jesus Christ. Give yourself to his word. Give yourself to the living word. Father, we pray. Fuel our love for you grow and increase our fear of you. Father, as we come before this table, we're reminded again of the new covenant, the one that came off of the Davidic covenant, and that is that your son, he took our sins in his body, he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins in order that, Father, your rightful wrath that ought to terrify us has been covered. You, your son, Father, is our refuge. Cause us to fear that. Cause us to fear him. Cause us to rejoice as we come to take the bread and take the cup and tremble that you would be so good to us, so gracious. We pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.